Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Shadow Eraser Poetry Hour. My name is Carla at Shadow Scribing, and I am joined again by my amazing co-host, Adam, which is at underscore no underscore eraser underscore. And this is our next installment of the Shadow Eraser Poetry Hour. And today we are bringing you something special. This is our inaugural episode, a specialty episode that we have affectionately coined the Penumbra. So sit back, relax, grab your beverage of choice, and get ready to do some thinking, some laughing, hopefully not too much crying, unless you're, you know, one of those cry laughers like I am. And from there, I will turn it over to my friend, Adam. Hey there, folks. Can you believe it? We already have this many episodes in. It's kind of wild. It's it's a super exciting thing to see. Thank you so much for the feedback and the great response that you guys have given us so far. And uh, yeah, this is this is just awesome. If if I could just do this as a full time job, that would be that would be ideal. Super excited about today. We're gonna kind of just talk about some stuff in regards to writing in general, inspirations, maybe a little bit of music, a little bit of art, a little bit of media. So that's that's exciting. The first thing I kind of wanted to talk about today, if that's all right, is I know in the past we've talked about influences in regards to other poets, but I'd like to dig into some of the media that that you consumed, my co-host, when you were younger that you feel like inspired a little bit of your writing. What was it that you found yourself drawn to? Let's let's go with movies first. Are there any movies out there that you really dug into when you were younger that you feel have sort of pushed you in a specific direction as a writer? Well, let's start with this. I am a product of the 80s, which is going to tell you so much. (laughs) It was a very interesting time for pop I mean, all of us Gen Xers pretty much are really part of a great age. I think that's why the nostalgia that comes with Stranger Things now, since that's been popular, like that's really brought back a lot of that nostalgia. Yeah, being a product of the 80s, one thing that I always mention, like when people ask me a little bit about my life story and the kind of person I was and things that influenced me, and I was the weirdo of my group of friends. I yeah, don't believe unbelievable, it. right? I was sort of the Lydia Dietz <laughs> in my in my happy little tribe of of friends in my neighborhood because while, you know, New Kids on the Block and Menudo and, you know, what was the other one? Oh my god, Bobby Brown was part of the group. New edition. New edition. I have no idea. So while boy bands and hair metal and the early days of club music and new wave, which I did like a lot of, I was a big, you know, I was a big new wave mm. girl. I am still obsessed with Depeche Mode. All my friends were listening to what was very popular then. I was going home and listening to Bauhaus and the misfits oh <laughs> and and yeah that that made life really interesting i would hang out with my friends and listen listen to nkotb and then run home to my room in solitude and listen to the cure <laughs> and that that was sort of my life my first celebrity crush because i didn't even know who this person was but when i was about 6 my uncle had brought home a double cassette the phantom of the opera soundtrack and i was swooning over Michael Crawford's voice. That was sexy to me back in the day. (laughs) And as far as movies are concerned, again, being a product of the 80s, I was reared and 
bred on the 80s fantasy movie. So you're talking the days uh, of yeah. Legend and Labyrinth and the Dark Crystal and the Last Unicorn and Neverending Story. Mm. <laughs> so from childhood, those were the movies that, that kind of reared me at that time. But then, of course, also including in that were the Brat Pack movies, The Breakfast Club and mm -hmm. Sixteen Candles and the various, you know, the different genres and different, I guess you could say, moods of that time period because it and again it was an interesting time because concurrently you had that the the huge uptick in fantasy movies and uh, a very much a re-immersion into you know, things like lord of the rings wasn't as popular then but a lot of things based on it like dungeons and dragons picked up again and became huge and you know so that was very much a part of the pop culture which also though helped spark the satan scare the satanism scare i don't know if anybody remembers that from the 80s it was kind of funny Oh, yeah. You know, sure. and then so you had the moody sort of shoegazer music. You had, you know, you had Bauhaus. You had, you know, the early days of the Sisters of Mercy, although they were a little more popular in the 90s. You had the beginnings of the dark kind of goth industrial age. But then you also had 80s synth pop and you had regular pop music. Like this was the heyday of Madonna and Michael Jackson and all of those classic 80s pop stars. Then you had metal and not only just you know your hair metal bands like your motley Crue's, your poisons your rats your you know all of you know all of those bands the big hair cock rock mm -hmm. hair metal bands you also had judas priest and iron maiden and you know an actual, actual metal, metal yeah because the misfits had switched over to <laughs> sam hain and then moved into danzig had his band and all of those moods <laughs> sort of got embodied into an entire generation and I was the one person who really could gravitate to any one of those and get something from it because there's eight there's you know mm. like I said there's 80s movies that I could watch like I said I still have either I own it or I bought it digitally because I have introduced these to my children all of the 80s fantasy movies mm. if I happen to be flipping channels well not so much flipping channels but flipping through streaming services and the breakfast club is on I'm like oh shit let me watch that I haven't watched that in a while you know and then at the same time if you look at my Spotify playlist you would probably think I have multiple personality disorder but I don't. <laughs> it's just a lot of the music that I grew up with. And again, that's everything from, like I said, the darker genres to old classic metal like Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, and everything from like the Eurythmics. And plus like the later 80s into the 90s singer-songwriters. I'm still a diehard Tori Amos fan, which then led me into like other, into other things now. It's kind of nice because we saw a resurgence of that, I think, come in like in the early 2000s when they decided to rehash the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I was like, oh, the fantasy movie came back. And now you have Game <laughs> of Thrones and The Witcher and Sandman's out. Neil Gaiman finally put out Sandman as a series. So it's just weird how these things kind of move in those cycles. And then I remember seeing a meme on Instagram and it and it did kind of give me a twitch. I, I I think I still have a little trauma from this, but they're like they're they're putting out stirrup pants again, and I'm like, okay, that's something we could leave where it was. <laughs> that can stay. We don't we don't really need to bring that back. Some of the other pop culture staples I'll take, but we can leave the stirrup pants back at Woolworths. <laughs> I'm just excited that they started selling right? guns again. That that was 
That was my day. None of them come in my size, though. Come on, Jinkos. No, you're all Most of the people who used to buy those things are probably out of weight by now. So yeah, come, come on, on man. Plus size Jinkos already. I love the fact that you brought up the, the darker fantasy of the 80s, though. Because that's something that the 80s did specifically well that you don't see a whole lot of nowadays. With the exception, really, of like Stranger Things. But again that entire show is a callback so it only makes sense but the 80s did something very special that that isn't seen in in modern cinema that really really informed on my writing and that was the dark children's fantasy talking about things like the never ending story the last unicorn the labyrinth you don't realize how unkid friendly these movies are until you go back and you watch them as an adult, or you're you're like, oh yeah, I, I watched the Neverending Story when I was a little kid. I'll show that to my my uh, my five year old. I'm sure they'll love it. And then halfway through it, you're like, fuck, this thing's traumatizing. I watched this as a kid, <laughs> like, but it's cool because there was that there was that weird era during the '80s where PG-13, a lot of the old school PG-13 really would have been like an R-rated movie nowadays but there was there's 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 something that's important there that takes place in cinema during the 80s where the directors and the writers were smart enough to understand that children inherently are attracted to that darker edgier side of fantasy you, you go back and you look at stuff like the never-ending story and specifically oh what's what's the movie i literally just named it off the one with Labyrinth. david bowie and the giant cod labyrinth yeah, yeah yeah the david bowie cod piece movie but that movie deals with all kinds of crazy dark in-depth adult themes everything from like budding sexuality to the fear that comes with attraction to age gap craziness to 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 death and and the feeling of being lost in in that specific age group of not quite being an adult yet but but no longer being in a child and I think a lot of that really kind of cemented itself in, in my own writing as well. You know, I was born in 84, I'm aging myself now, but but I think a lot of that kind of formed its way in my writing, whether I meant for it to or not in, in cinema. It's, it's cool how different media can, can affect your hobby or affect your craft. For me, when we're talking about cinema growing up, like, yeah, I had all the staples, like, you know, Ghostbusters and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, the original one, which, again, if you go back and you watch that thing, holy hell, this was a kid's movie? Like, yeah. <laughs> Hindsight, you go back and you rewatch that, it's like, this is not a kid's movie, man. This is, this is pretty dark. But that's the stuff I grew up on. That's the stuff that I was obsessed with. But I also from a really, really young age, kind of love of horror. And even kind of, you know, well, well into my adult age. Uh, obviously, I, I'm a huge fan of it. So I was, I started off watching a lot of the old 70s grindhouse stuff that, that wouldn't even necessarily be considered horror, horror, but very much was like, what is it, Precinct, Precinct, 19, Precinct? There, there, was a, there was a Precinct movie. I remember as a kid watching it, and it's, this small town police station and it's like being sieged by all these gangs and there's this thing that the 70s did that I absolutely adored as a young kid growing up that it gives a sense of claustrophobia and almost like a fever dream in the way that the movies are shot or like oh man 
there are so many good ones. The original Texas mm-hmm. Chainsaw Massacre. I watched that far too young. Oh, uh, I agree. And the funny thing, you go back and you watch that movie, and a lot of the violence is, it's, it's. I don't want to say that it's implied, but it was a black and white movie. So you're not seeing the big splashes of bloody red gore that you would you would necessarily see in a lot of today's slasher flicks. But that stuff, man, that stays with you. And of course, you got your your classic Stephen King's, right? right? Like the original It miniseries, definitely imprinted on me, <laughs> and definitely kind of affects a lot of the imagery that I use in, in my writing, even if it's done so subconsciously. Yes, the Cemetery. That's another one that I was absolutely assessed with. When I, was I still have the theme song by the Ramones on my Spotify list. Ooh, nice, nice. King, man, King knows how to integrate his music. If, if the directors would leave him alone <laughs> and not, in the studio would leave him alone and just let him do his own thing. He's had some misfires for sure, but that man, that man can, can do a soundtrack right. You remember the Stan yes, miniseries? That was great. The opening scene Reaper. with Don't Fear the Reaper playing in the background. That stuck in my head for so long as a young writer. Just that feeling of, of hopelessness, but also mm-hmm. freedom. Because a lot of times in those movies, when, when you're faced with the end of the world stakes, grades don't matter. That asshole bully in PE doesn't matter. The teacher who won't get off your back doesn't matter. Mom and dad's divorce kind of seems to pale in comparison when, when it's the end of the world. So there was a lot of escapism for me in, in those old school horror films. So were, were you a big fan of horror Oh, absolutely. Up well? And it was funny that you should mention about things that we watched entirely too young because the reason I felt... Beethoven is my all-time favorite classic composer. The second is Chopin. Mm-hmm. I was introduced mm-hmm. to Beethoven because in my house... Sometimes, and these are some of the more pleasant memories I have with my family. They were not all bad. Um, my mom's brother lived with us at the time. And it was like he and I and my mom and my dad, if we were all home on a Saturday night, sometimes we would all plop down. And there was this show, and I can't remember what station it was on. But the hostess, her name was Stella or something like that. And she hosted the show called Saturday Night Dead. So they would show like all those like old Plan 9 movies, the RCA flicks. But this particular night, they put on Rosemary's Baby. Mm. And it was 11 o'clock at night. I'm sure my parents thought she's just going to pass out on the living room floor or pass out on the couch. But I kind of (laughs) didn't. And I remember that was my first time because they played that after the song that Mia Farrow sang, that very weird song that she sang at the end credits, the next song that they played was Fear Elise. And that was the first time I ever heard it. Mm -hmm. And I just, I was hooked. I was absolutely obsessed. So yeah, little things like that. And of course, you know, like I said, the Phantom of the Opera was my quote unquote first celebrity crush. And originally when that Mm -hmm. was first written... I mean, the book was kind of a disaster in a lot of ways, but the cool thing about it, it was part horror, part romance, part mystery novel. And there's a lot of interesting complexities to that. And I guess, I don't know, being a trauma survivor, like I, that was probably my first trauma bond in <laughs> my life. <laughs> it was with an imaginary <laughs> character. And yeah, so we were definitely big horror fans. And it was everything from, like I said, from classic horror. You know, I remember being in eighth grade 
And in the grammar school that I went to, which, I mean, I went to a poor grammar school in, in Trenton. We didn't, we had mm-hmm. maybe 15, 16 kids in our graduating eighth grade class. And we, we were on the top floor, which was actually the auditorium, was our classroom. And then in the upstairs area of the computer room was our old library. And it was just some racks of old books. And that's where I had gotten this 1930-ish edition of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Of, the, of Stevenson. I have his complete works, but I, I still have that book packed away somewhere. And I took that home and I read that story and I was like, this is amazing. That's actually one of my all-time favorite horror stories. And then from there in 1989, things like, that was the release of The Silence of the Lambs. And I can mm. still memorize large, I could probably recite the whole movie from Rope. Because again, that was probably like the first mm. psychological thriller that I ever was hooked on. And it was amazing for that because then I found that, you know, I guess as kids or when we're first introduced to like the old monster movies, you know, Bela Lugosi's Dracula, Lon Chaney's Wolfman, you know, and the, and yeah, the, the universal, universal monsters. monsters. I mean, Dracula, yeah. I mean, they, the Victorianized kind of version after leaving that 1920s version of Nosferatu, which by the way, when they redid that or when they did that movie with John Malkovich and um, mm-hmm. Willem Dafoe, <laughs> that was brilliant. If you have, a, if you haven't seen it, watch it it's brilliant but leaving that old like very folklorish you know horrific version of dracula to the victorianized bram stoker's version of dracula and what's very funny is that most people don't know this bram stoker and vlad tepesh were born on the same day several hundred years apart yeah they had the same birthday (laughs) i was like well that's irony but more than i mean he was probably the only really intelligent or charismatic monster. He was the first charismatic monster. And then from there, though, like I said, you had, you know, the creature from the Black Lagoon, and then the blob, which is not even a sentient being. It's just a big fucking (laughs) blob of slime eating everything. You have those in Dungeons and Dragons now. But anyway, but I, Mm. I digress. When it moved from that into the more sophisticated and more charismatic, because again being a product of 80s horror, you had The Lost Boys. You had right. the early Stephen King films. You had Pet Cemetery. You had, you know, uh, Salem's Lot. You had, I mean, even though it was more later 70s into the 80s, you had Carrie. You had all of these other interesting mm-hmm. horror films that really embodied something more darker because it was so much more human. It wasn't just mindless right. evil. Like, it has a personality. And it has, right. and even things that you can empathize with, which I think really is what scares the shit out of people. I remember watching the first time, like as an adult, a little more of an aware adult, going back and watching The Silence of the Lambs for the first time. And not only that, but the entire, you know, those three movies, Silence of the Lambs, Red Dragon, Hannibal, and really rooting for the character. He's a, he's a complete <laughs> sociopath. And... At the oh, same absolutely. time, the, like, but this is the person you're rooting for. And you find yourself, like, that's, that's the mindfuck that, that horror has given us over time. But I think what it allows us to do, probably in a very safe way, is to examine the monsters that we carry. And I think sometimes that filters through for our writing, where the things that 
we know that it would be impolity to do in waking life, in real life, we can sort of live that out in our writing. And I think that's too why I was such... I was so smitten, again, one of the first authors that I became absolutely enraptured with after Edgar Allan Poe was Anne Rice. Because, again, Mm. she took one of the oldest, most archetypal monsters and created the Vampire Chronicles. And not just one, but several characters. And, again, the mindfuck would continue because you start with the story of Louis and Lestat and then... You feel really bad for Louis, and you think Lestat is, what an asshole, but then you read the vampire Lestat, and then you're like, oh shit. Like, there's layers <laughs> to this. You know, we're, you know, we just keep peeling back more and more and more. And I love how she layered the characters that way and made them just as complex and deep as any other person you might know. It, it wasn't just one flat two-dimensional story it just it was something that you could continually build on and build on it was like in her own universe and I always loved her for that and that's something that I always wish I could do and I probably could if I sat and disciplined myself enough to actually do it but it's one of the things that I always admired her for because like I said I think you know again being also a big fan of Jungian psychology the things that force us to confront our own shadow are things that I just think stick with us. And even especially us as artists, whether it be writing, music, you know, film, you know, actual literal art, painting, sculpture, whatever. We are so much, I just think we're, we're a group of people that interpret that so differently or feel that and interpret that so well, but feel it so much more deeply than maybe John Q. Public, who's, you know, working at a car dealership or in a cubicle and in some corporate office somewhere, you know? Yeah, no, I think you're, you're spot on, especially with being able to, there's, there's definitely something there. There's a connection there of being a trauma survivor and being able to consume media that is horrific and walk away safe. I, I think it's probably in the same line of why people like to skydive or go bungee jumping. But for trauma survivors, a lot of times those horrific things are a little more in the real life. And that's why, like you said, Silence of the Lambs, Anthony Hopkins was only on screen for 16 minutes. Yep. In that entire movie. 16 minutes. But the performance and, and the characterization there is done so masterfully that you feel like the entire movie is about... Hannibal. It's not. It's not. He's literally a side character that's that's in the movie for, for 16 minutes. But I think that something that you, you stated there with being interested in or more attracted to that that media that has layers definitely reflects in, in our writing as we grow. What we like to consume becomes a little more layered. What we like to produce becomes a little more layered. For me, it was like Jacob's yes, Ladder. Yes, that was a great movie. Uh, I, I remember, yeah, growing up and, and seeing that for the first time and realizing, oh, this isn't another, you know, Monster of the Month movie. This is something that's a direct reflection of what it is to wrestle with your own sanity and PTSD and, you know, <laughs> the the support systems that are there for people who, when they come back from war or trauma in general. The, the industry of mental health. And the movie had so much to say. And I wasn't just attracted to the the imagery in the movie, which was definitely leaps and bounds of, above what was being put out at the time. But I was attracted to what you said, the layers. 
So when I go to write now, that's something that I try to kind of keep in the back of my head is, and I was thinking about this earlier today when I was kind of doing, you know, curated work, trying to find pieces for our next episode, which will be a live episode, folks. Make sure that you tune into that. But there are a billion poems out there that say, I am sad. Okay, I, I get that. Sadness sucks. We've all felt sad before. But what I desperately look for when I'm trying to curate a piece is, what are the specifics? The devils and the angels are in the details. And if I read a piece that expertly says in a very creative way, I am sad, okay, cool, I get that, but what else is there? So when I try to write now, I like to try and write, and I'm sure all of us do, something that I would enjoy to, to read or to consume myself. And I, I am past reading something that says I am sad and, and looking at that and saying, oh, I'm, I'm sad too. Okay, that resonates with me. I want to know the story. I want to know the specifics. I want to know the DNA of a piece. So when I, I read something that is on its surface level very deep because it's using masterful language or interesting metaphor, when it comes right down to it, if all the poem says is, I am sad, like, I'm, I'm left a little yeah. wanting for something a little more, something a little deeper. And that's something that I've really tried to make an effort in, in moving away from when I choose to write something. Uh, so I, I think we've done movies to death. Let's, well, let's yeah, dig somewhat. a little bit more into... I I'm said sorry, somewhat. What was that? No, because it was funny because as you were yeah. talking, I, I was something else had come to mind and thinking about, you know, the layers and the things that we tend to reiterate in our writing. And I found, too, that another thing that really helped me cope and I, this really wasn't something that I even appreciated in, in my own consciousness until, again, being an adult and kind of going through the processes that I'm going through. Because, again, you know, talking about, the, like, the whole vampire genre, like, some of that, you know, had just become for fun. Like, again, from the era that brought you Fright Night and the Lost Boys, which were just total, like, 80s vampire movies. But this was also the era that brought you Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger. You know oh, what I mean? Yeah. And while I wasn't a huge Friday the 13th fan, I mean, I enjoy them, but I was far more into Nightmare on Elm Street because, again, you're dealing with the subconscious, with which right away was just way more interesting to me. And I remember the first time I saw that movie, I had to make my mom turn it off because the one part where they drag Nancy's body down, hall, down the school hallway, like, I was like eight when I saw that and I fucking flipped oh, out. Yeah. <laughs> but later on though what I recognize is that a couple years later they actually started a series and Robert England yes. hosted it yes. and played Freddy Krueger and I love the fact that he made an appearance in Stranger Things that made my fucking year but anyway <laughs> much love to Robert England but what I found myself doing is that in my own imagination and in the things that I would write or just the weird shit that I would think about before I would go to bed at night because this is how messed up my brain is I found myself playing out scenarios where I made friends with the monsters. You know what uh, I mean? I started to do that because yeah, I figured yeah. if I can somehow befriend what frightened me, if I could find some connection with it, then I would be safe. And it didn't scare me as much uh, anymore. Okay. You know what I mean? I found myself doing that. That's interesting. Yeah, see, you've got two sides of the same coin here because me... 
as a young caveman, used to sit around and think, okay, how could I fuck Freddy <laughs> up? How can, how can I beat him? And for me, that came with the Dream Warriors. Nightmare on Elm Street Dream Warriors. Yeah, and the kids, like the teen, I say kids, Lord, I guess they are kids now. To me, anyway, but they were like, they got to be like superheroes, and there was a scene where they were going in video games. And I've got a hot take on Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street is more or less, the majority of the Nightmare on Elm Street is a Three Stooges style comedy dressed up in body horror. Oh, I, I wholeheartedly it, agree I, with you. It, yeah, because Freddy, if you go back and you look at him, until you, like, you deal with the retcon nonsense of the newest movie where Freddy's like a child molester and all this other stuff, he is meant to be a goofy slapstick mascot of sorts for the entire movie series. But the body horror is so well done. And there are obviously high stakes, but I don't know if this is just Adam being a fucked up little kid, but there were so many times when I watched that movie where I was just absolutely belly laughing. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Absolutely. But you know, the one, that, the one that got me, sorry folks, one one more movie thing before we go on, but this does actually impact my writing quite a bit, was the original Hellraiser yes. series, one and two. The oh, first two movies. Yeah. Speaking of, yeah, speaking of yeah. dark things, now let's get into sadomasochism. That's always fun. Right. <laughs> right. And and I was raised a Baptist. I grew up in a Baptist That must church. have been so interesting for and, you. And, oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just it. And, you know, I'm still a Christian, but I'm not, I'm not young Adam Champion Baptist anymore. That's for sure. But growing up, for me, demons were a very real thing. So I can deal with a Freddy, I can deal with a Jason, I can deal with a, a blob or a vampire, whatever, but you start bringing demons into it? And for a young child, heavily raised in the church, seeing something like that absolutely terrified me to death. Because I was like, well, vampires aren't real, but shit, demons, demons are real. How the hell am I going to deal with Pinhead if he decides to show up? But I, I loved the imagery in the movies. And it was funny because I remember watching the second one. And the part that disturbed me the most wasn't necessarily the monsters or the body horror, but the mm. hospital that the doctor ran in the insane asylum. And I remember being very young thinking, that's the most horrible place in the world, being being in an insane asylum like that, only to grow up and then proceed to work in one. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> but but yeah, the, the imagery definitely impacted me as a young writer, specifically a lot of religious iconography and, and, and bringing in something that's very visceral to my writing. And, and to me, I think it's so important for young writers especially, don't just consume all of the writing that you can, but dig into media in general. Because any media in general started off as writing first. They didn't just make that movie out of thin air. There was there were screenwriters who, who produced that thing that that you're consuming. There are songwriters that produced that song that gives you those goosebumps. So I think it's it's so important. Absolutely, and sure. funny with what you were talking about. That's why The Exorcist scared the shit out of every Catholic kid that ever watched it. I was born and raised Catholic, Roman Catholic, so oh, yeah. watching that is just wow. That's it's we were raised with the possibility that that is something that could be very real. So no, I, I totally right, and there are real feel world, you on that. And the crazy thing is, is there are real world consequences to that media. Um, the instances of or reports of exorcisms and demonic possession went up exponentially yes. after the exorcist came out. 
So these things that we create as writers are very, very much impact the real world. And that's fascinating. Oh, absolutely. So do you want to do you want to dig into music Let's... a little bit more? I know you talked about some of your influences. So how did how did they specifically impact your writing? Which groups really kind of pushed you to be a certain type of writer or encouraged you to dig into a subject a little bit deeper? Ooh, you know, I am one of those I am one of those people that would hear a piece of music or listen to an album and immediately a story would evolve. That has happened to me so many times. I write with a soundtrack. And I guess the reason for that is is because for as long as I can remember, I loved stories. I lo- I mean, I was a voracious reader. I, I would read more if I had more time. I do read though, um, but I was a voracious reader. And again, growing up in the 80s fantasy genre and just having so much of my formative years influenced by these amazing stories, whether it's, you know, the classic, like something like a legend or a labyrinth where it's, you know, good confronting evil, you know, the dark crystal, and then the weird shit like Watership Down. <laughs> I don't know if anybody remembers that. It was like a 78 oh, animated Lord. film with bunnies and it was just... But it was, again, this is not for children. <laughs> this is, this no, is not for children. But anyway, so listening to something like 80 synth pop, one of the, again, let's take just randomly, female artists that were very, very popular when I was growing up. So you had your Madonnas, you had your Cindy Loppers, you had that genre, but then you had your Kate Bush. And you had your Annie Lennox. And then taking somebody like, say, for instance, Laura Branigan, who not many people know who she is, but anybody who's ever heard the song Gloria, it was one of her most popular songs. But she also did another song that reached, I think, like number four in the U.S. And it hit number one in several places in Europe was the song called Self Control. And looking at it, it is, again, a very sort of sexualized theme, you know, again, very much an influence of like something like the Phantom of the Opera. But taking something like that, even though it was a very synthy sort of pop song, there was something inherently very dark about it and mysterious and sexy. And that not really even being able to articulate that. At that age, it had an effect. It was funny. I was having, this was maybe two years ago. This is probably just after things opened up for pandemic or just before we closed down for pandemic, somewhere in there. I was having brunch with a good friend of mine that's in the program. She and I went to a meeting and then we went and had something to eat. And being as that we were about the same age, grew up at the same time, we got into the conversation of the first time you recognized that bodily sensation independently And again, I'll never forget it. I was about seven or eight. And that year, the Bob Hope Christmas special was airing. And he had Michael Crawford and Dale Christensen, who was the second Christine Daae, he had them do a piece on the show. And it was them Mm -hmm. singing Music of the Night. But in the the opening, it's basically kind of a mock-up of the one scene from The Phantom of the Opera. And where he's standing in front of that big gate and he's there in the fedora and the black tux and the cape and he starts singing in this amazingly like oozing soft honey touched baritone 
And he shrugs off mm-hmm. his cape and just whisks away his fedora. And I was just done. I'm sitting there catatonic, <laughs> just glazed over in front of the television. I think my mom was trying to talk to me and I just couldn't even register her voice. And I'm just sitting there taking this in and things are happening that I don't understand. (laughs) But I know that it feels really good. And I'm like, I can't believe this. And then from there, that what I love to, what that gave me an appreciation for as well is innuendo. And when we talk Mm. about music and we, even in film, you know, because you look at something like that, like I remember like one of the most powerful scenes in, and I know it's a very taboo film now, but watching Gone with the Wind, and when I watched that for the first time, there's that one scene where Rhett and Scarlet are downstairs in the foyer or whatever, in the little parlor, and he's all drunk and they're fighting, and then all of a sudden he picks her up and he runs her upstairs, and they cut scene, and the next morning she, it, it's just her in bed, and she's kind of like, Big stretch and shit-eating smile on her face. And they don't have to say anything. It allows you to fill in the blanks and it gets your imagination running. And that is what I, even in music, if you can start making me think, I've had this discussions with many friends and perhaps you'd agree too. Every sensation is generated from the brain. And it's like, if you can stimulate my brain, whether it's, erotically, intellectually, spiritually, philosophically, any of those things. Like, I'm putty in your hands. I am putty in your hands. The space between a human being's ears is the biggest erogenous zone. Never mind the G-spot for a woman. Work on her brain. (laughs) If you can get in her head... And figure that out. And I, I think, too, this is where men get a raw deal. Because I think that a lot of times people often say men see something or hear something. It's all visual. It's all tactile. And I think that's bullshit. It okay, is. so you can yeah, take no, with this I, now. I've, yeah, no, I have never felt more loved than when my wife and I can have an in-depth, connected conversation. Amen. Everything else is just a bonus. It's a nice bonus, but that intellectual connection is certainly what hits me at my deepest core, for sure. And I think music is an amazing first step mm-hmm. into that. It's so funny because growing up, a lot of the young young guys that I knew, everyone had an actor actress crush, typically, or a model crush. But for me, it was talented women singers. Yes. Growing up, Shirley Manson. I remember, the, the, and, and there's just something about music that hits you on an emotional level that is far more than, than physical, that it feels more important. It feels more real. And, and for me, not even necessarily that attraction, but the connection, the, the spark, the goosebumps that it gives you, and like you were saying, the implied sense of what's to come really pushed me forward in my writing. Because when I write a love piece, I don't write a description of the events that have taken place between me and my wife at a certain event. And this is what makes me happy. It's, again, the devils and the angels are in the details. What is the emotional connection here? What is the story? I love the fact that you pointed out it was the stories that you were attracted to. All of my favorite artists growing up 
were fantastic mm-hmm. storytellers. So, like, for me, it started with, funnily enough, a, a CD that I borrowed from my wife in high school. I listened to some other music when I was younger, but none of it really mattered. It, it all felt like background noise. But I remember specifically driving down Highway, what was it, 31W, with Natalie. I wasn't driving. I was younger than her. She was driving. And she put in a CD, and it was OK Computer oh, by Radio. Oh, wow. And... The first song was was interesting, and then Paranoid Android came on, and I got about halfway through that song, and I remember asking her, "What? Who? Who is this? What is this?" A lot of people knew Radiohead from Creep, and it, it's an okay song. It's a good song. It's it's a little overplayed, and Pablo Honey, probably, definitely, absolutely not their best album, but it's their freshman album. So, like, what do you expect? But I remember bothering her so much for the the lyric booklet. That's something that used to come in something called a CD, yes. folks. But CDs used to come with a lyric booklet. And I remember bothering her on MS Messenger, if that tells you anything <laughs> about... Yeah. Yes! MS Messenger, hey, when can I get this lyric booklet? And... I consumed OK Computer over and over and over again. And then I would listen to it without the lyric booklet. And then I would listen to it and read along. And now that I think about it, I really started writing in earnest when I started kind of obsessing about Radiohead and going to our local record store in Louisville called Ear Ecstasy, which is long since shut down, unfortunately, and getting all of the EPs that I could and the foreign releases that I could because I just wanted more and more and more. And I became obsessed with the way that Tom York would write because he was very much a storyteller. But he wasn't a direct storyteller. A lot of the stuff that he would write was out of focus a little bit and you had to dig for it. And you couldn't read it and get the true meaning out of it the first time or the second or the third. But I knew that it was intriguing and I knew that it was different and deep and that was that was definitely my first love that I can remember for, for music, for sure. And then that, of course, I say, of course, like it's a logical progression. But then I started digging into Nine Inch Nails mm-hmm. and Trent, Trent Reznor. I say Trent like we're just best. Yeah, I was hanging out with Trent yeah. the other day. But no, Trent Reznor wrote in a way that my young teenage mind and heart could relate to that nothing else I had come across could could spark in me. And I remember, I can't even tell you how many times I've listened to The Downward Spiral or Pretty Hate Machine, but it really clicked with me when Fragile, mm. the, the two-disc album that Nine Inch Nails put out. And I think that the reason why it clicked with me is because initially I was obsessed with the angst of mm-hmm. the band, right? Because I could relate to that. And if you go back and you look at my old high school cringy poetry, a lot of it very much mirrors that sort of like everything is shit and life is hard and I hate the world. But The Fragile came along and of course that was in there because it's a Nine Inch Nails record. But there were also songs that gave glimpses of hope in spite of that shittiness. And that's something that I adored as a young we're in this together now is one of my favorite mm-hmm. songs of all time and even if you go back and you you listen to that album you look at the lyrics they're not per se love song lyrics but 
there is a shroud of hope that is draped over this dead body of a song, and I adored that. So a lot of the stuff that I write, even to this day, is in that same sort of atmosphere, that same sort of feeling for me, for sure. And I get that because, again, in my coming of age, I was in high school from 94 to 98. So you're talking about the height of the grunge era. And Kurt Cobain died my freshman year of high school. And then, of course, though, we still had Pearl Jam. 10 was everything, mm. you know, my freshman year of high school. Oh, man. And for me, even in those places, like, I still was so... Uh, I was still so rebellious. I was still so edgy about what it is that I liked. Because even though everybody was obsessed with Nirvana... I like Nirvana, but my favorite album, and I will swear by this until my dying day, is the Unplugged album, because there was a rawness mm. and a beauty to that, and I it's yeah, so good. and I got spoiled because my first concert, the first rock concert that I ever attended, which Nine Inch Nails and David Bowie at the Hershey Park Arena. Oh shut uh, up! That Are was my me? first concert, and I'll never forget this. My cousin had one. We have a local radio station here. It's not even the same radio station anymore, but it was WPST. And they were giving away tickets. You had to phone in a certain time when a certain song played. You got tickets to the show. And my cousin won. And he's my cousin Robbie. And he calls me up. He's I won tickets to go see Nine Inch Nails and David Bowie. I was like, you're fucking kidding me. Of course, I was 16. That's ridiculous. I was 16, though. So, of course, I hang up the phone and I look at my mom. I'm like, Mom, <laughs> I know it's a school night. But it's... And here's the thing. My mom... And I, there, there's one thing. We have differing tastes in many things. David Bowie is our link. <laughs> My mother had a <laughs> giant picture of Ziggy Stardust on her nice. wall or on her door when she was growing up. Her mother hated it, hated it with an unbridled mm. passion. But she's like, you get to go see David Bowie and I don't. I'm like, well, if I could get you a ticket, I would. And she let me go. And it was the most amazing nice. thing. And and here's the amazing part. I was maybe, we were in, in general admission. I was maybe eight feet from the stage. And oh, shut up. what was funny is that Nine Inch Nails opened. And of course it was mayhem because they opened with Wish. But nice. Nine Inch Nails were all having a great time. And then him and David Bowie got together and sang a couple of songs together. They did Hurt together. Oh and I will gosh. never forget that. Oh, my God. And then David Bowie picked up with The Man Who Sold the World. And then went into, because Outside was like the big album that he was promoting at that time. So then it got into Heart's Filthy Lesson. But then he did some of his classics. But what was funny is at different times during the performance, I would turn and just look around and just assess what was going on around me. And when Trent Reznor was on stage, when Nine Inch Nails was on stage, everybody's just like jumping. There's mosh pits. We're lifting people over our heads. But there was this sort of calm and sedation and transfixiation of the entire crowd when David Bowie took the stage. Mm -hmm. And I turn around Reverence. and I look and just as far as the eye could see was just breasts everywhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nothing for Trent Reznor. No, no offense to Trent. I love Trent Reznor. I like him even more off the heroin. But it was just... Yeah. Not, I, you were just a wash in a sea of bare breasts for David Bowie. And it was just... I'm like, that's fucking amazing. And he's literally just standing on stage in white, almost like track pants and a white wife beater. Excuse the expression, but that's what we called him back in the day. Like those old white, old-fashioned tank tops. 
just standing there in his blonde, tussled hair, smoking those long, thin cigarettes that he used to smoke, just standing there. And he would just stand with his arms crossed, just kind of eyeing right over the microphone, just looking at the crowd. And everybody just went fucking nuts. And I'm like, you are a fucking god. You are not even of this planet. And that's the way, and that, but you know what? Those, that's the beauty of that time and the way music affects people. So again, like even at that time, like, so again, getting back into like Nirvana, it was the Unplugged album, the height of the grunge era. Do I like Pearl Jam? Like Pearl Jam. Really like a lot of their stuff. Liked Soundgarden. Really big fan of Alice in Chains. But Mark Lennigan was my guy. I threw my phone on the floor when I found out he died. I'm like, fuck this. I'm like, this is not even true. I was upset because I loved, again, listening to his writing. If you listen for, go back and listen to Song for the Dead. Like there's this amazing performance where he did, he was up there because he was playing with the Stone Age and Dave Grohl was on drums and he was just beasting it and just listening to the lyrics and watching him stand there like everybody else all the other guitarists Dave Grohl's going crazy and Mark Lennigan is just standing there rocking a little bit with the microphone just almost like he's fucking bored (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. and it was just but just the power of that and just but even in other things like when he went off and started doing solo work he had also done a couple albums with Isabel Campbell of Bell and Sebastian And those were some amazing pieces of work. But yeah, so it wasn't Lane Staley. It wasn't Kurt Cobain. It wasn't Eddie Vedder. It was, it was Mark Lennigan. So even then I was very kind of like against the grain in, in a lot of those genres. And of course, a lot of the music that was coming out at that time, of course, you had the advent of when the Lilith Fair got big. So you had Jewel, you know, and you had, but then you also had fucking PJ Harvey who I, like, I adored her. Oh, To Bring You My Love is probably, again, one of those formative albums, along with Tori Amos. Have you heard PJ Harvey's track with Tom York? Yes, and it's... This match we're in? Absolutely amazing. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, two of my favorites singing together. It's, yeah, that happens a lot, actually. Tom also did a track with Bjork. Who I also love. Dancer in the Dark yeah, which is absolutely, man, that movie's absolutely heartbreaking, but that track that they do together is amazing. I'm, you guys, this is a audio meeting, so you can't see me, but the entire time that my co-host here is talking about her first concert being Nine Inch Nails and fucking David Bowie, I'm shaking my head. My first concert was Creed. You're a, you're a, you're a Presbyterian Baptist boy from Kentucky. That made, it just makes sense. Uh, okay, hey, my own prison. It's you know, not a bad I can't remember. It's it's not a bad song. Their first album. So yeah, my first concert was Creed. Seven Dust opened for him, which was really dope. And I think Finger Eleven. So again, I'm very much dating myself here, but that was my first concert experience. Yeah, well, my second one was Ozzy Osbourne, and they opened, it was Corn and Life of Agony that opened for them. And again, Jonathan Davis... That man on stage is just something otherworldly again. That, that too. Oh, yeah, he's a force of nature. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's a force of nature, absolutely. I think we've spent <laughs> the majority of the podcast talking about music, Who but cares? it informs on and it affects your writing in such a profound way. Again, going back to the storyteller aspect of it, that's something that I love to read to this day and love to write. Uh, I remember one of the first uh, artists that really, really kind of pushed me towards storytelling style in my writing was Ben mm-hmm. Folds. 
Um, I was a huge fan of Ben Folds 5, and I had the pleasure of being able to see them in concert. Golly, not too... Not too soon before the band broke up, actually. And I had a chance to chat with Ben before the show. We were, we were standing in line at this little place called Jillian's, and the concert venue was the basement of this restaurant. It was called the Atlas Room. There was this giant statue of Atlas holding the globe on his back before he went down into this basement. And this is back when, again, I, I was pretty young, so you had to get big black X's on the back of your hands with a permit. Yes. So that you could, I don't know if they still do that or not, but I there was a pride going to school the next day feeling absolutely shitty and getting like zero sleep and you had these big badass black axes on the back of your hand like yeah i went to a concert last night but before the show i look over and ben folds is over there just chilling eating eating dinner and i was like you know screw it i'm gonna be an asshole and i walked over there i kind of snuck out of line and i walked over there and i was like hey man i know you're eating dinner i just want to say good luck tonight i'm sure you're gonna kill it and he was like hey i really appreciate that and I was like, I'll let you get back to eating. You know, I, I don't mean to interrupt you. And he was like, no, 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 it's cool. I, I appreciate it, man. I was like, awesome. See you later. And he proceeded to blow the, the roof off the place as best you can with a piano and synthesized drum machine. But he was such a great storyteller. That's something that, that absolutely fascinated me as, as a young writer. So yeah, and I mean, again, even too with writing, I mean, you can't deny the inextricable link between poetry and songwriting, because it's really what it is. It's it, All it is is poems with music put to them. So That's exactly you know. So, of course, you know, music is a huge influence, and just listening to some of the songs, some of them, even if they weren't very profound, they could still convey such a strong message. Yeah, I'm trying to think like of a good example. Okay, so again, I was talking about Queen of the Stone Age. One of my favorites. And if you listen to Song for the Dead and you remember that one of the lyrics in the first verse, it's life's the study of dying, how to do it right. You're a holy roller. If you're betting to lose, if you're hanging around, I'm holding the noose. And it's not complex, but holy shit, what an image. Yeah, Josh is really good at that. I've had a chance to see Queens twice. The first time was for free at Erectasy, that record store we were talking about, and it was before their show that night. And there was a murmur going around that they were going to play a, a free show somewhere. And I'm in this little bitty record store, and they start setting up equipment, and in walks Queens of Stone Age. And Josh comes rolling up in there like the fucking rock star he is with a rodeo shirt on. It's got roses on the sleeve and like a big, big rose on the back. And they, they set up their equipment and I am literally as close to the band as I am to my computer monitor right now. Josh gets on the mic and he says, all right, what do you guys want to hear? And they proceed to play requests for like an hour and then just hang out with everybody after the show. And, but yeah, man, they're writing. I want something good to live, or I want something good to die for, to make it easier to live. Just, it, it's, some of the lines, man, they're so simple, but they're so well done. And, and that's it, man. That, that's what I look for when I'm writing, that line, that, that hook. It doesn't necessarily have to be something that's earth-shattering, but it has to be important. Yes. And I feel like I'm going to get in my old man corner right now, but so much of the stuff today, man. I know. It just doesn't pack that not, punch. It's not important. It's just not. 
no one's going to go get a Gucci Gang lyric tattoo on their body. And then five years from now, have their, their grandkid ask them, hey, what's that mean, Grandpa? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know. All right. I'm out of old man corner now because we're we're rounding up on our time. Sorry about that, folks. No, that's okay. But yeah, and I mean, there are times that I curse that I'm not a good songwriter. I mm. wish I could be. Although people have said, no, you could put music to this. I, I, I don't know. What's funny is I can go in reverse. You give me a piece of instrumental music, I can put words to it, but I can't do the reverse. Right. Cannot do it. What's interesting is my nine-year-old daughter just decided one day to write and make up a song and send me a video of it. And for a nine-year-old, it was pretty damn sophisticated about her going on to like, yeah, even the lyrics. And it's funny because she's had a very, her childhood is a huge departure for mine. Huge. She did not raise, which is good, but there's a part of this that it's gotta be fucking genetic. My kid cried when Darth Vader died. Okay. And when we were watching the newer Star Wars series, and who's your favorite character? I like Kylo Ren. I'm like, oh, Christ. I'm like, I'm doomed. I'm doomed. Because it's like me all over again. And so she sends me a recording of this song. And some of the lyrics, like, in this house, I feel so empty. I need to be free. So I get up, I put my shoes on, and I go to the swing set. And what do I see? I see a daydream of me, of a mermaid out at sea. Wondering what else is special. I see me. I see a daydream of me in a field of falling leaves raining down on me, seeing colors that I couldn't see. And I'm like, you're fucking nine. Where did you come up with this shit? And it was funny because I sent this to a friend of mine, another author, and he writes me back. She is her mother's daughter. And all right, I guess. And I'm sitting there. There's a part of me that's very proud and a part of me that's also very fucking nervous. (laughs) <laughs> well, if it gives you any comfort, it's a hell of a lot better than a good chunk of the stuff that I've read lately. So. <laughs> uh, oh, man. Well, this has been absolutely fantastic. Would you mind telling the folks who are listening to us where they can find us and what they can look forward to next? Absolutely. So this was our inaugural episode of The Penumbra, which, again, is just us taking a, a little step back from curated poetry and prompt reads and author interviews to just discuss some of the things that we are influenced by and things that we enjoy. You know, we will have more of these pop up here and there with different topics. Hey, maybe at some point, even different guests, maybe we'll pull some of our previous guests and do some roundtable discussion because I'm sure we could probably get some really interesting answers from there too. So you can find us on Instagram at shadow underscore eraser. And you can find us online at our website at www.shadoweraserpoetry.com. And we are once again, so glad you joined us tonight. I hope you enjoyed our lively discussion feel free to reach out. You can contact us through the website. You can also contact us through Instagram. If you have questions or comments or ideas, things that you want to hear, things that you want to see more of, we are open to your feedback. We are open to your responses. It's not just about prompts, people. We want to hear from our listeners. So thank you so much for joining us, Adam. It has been an absolute pleasure. I can't wait to have another one of these chin wags with you. <laughs> Likewise. All right. All right, folks, take care. Looking forward to hanging out with you next time.